is good to be home. Well, my name is Anthony, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with sexual addiction, codependency, and is an is a overcomer of sexual abuse. How are you? This is my story. From as early as I can remember, I always loved Jesus. I was exposed to church, Bible stories, and Sunday school at a very early age. I was confident of this song that I sang in church as a little boy. You might know it. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I knew that this meant Jesus loved me. And I always had an affinity towards the thing of, of God. And I can still remember the picture of the cover of my very first Bible that I received at age five. I remember the excitement that I felt about getting dressed up in my Sunday best, to hop in the car with my mom and to attend church service. I loved the tradition we had of going out for a buffet breakfast after service, eating a whole lot of bacon, and, and talking about Jesus. See, I was fascinated by him. I was determined to never deny him like Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, or, or to be afraid to walk on water like Peter, or refuse to let Jesus wash my feet like Peter. Man, now that I think of it, poor Peter, man, he got a rough break. People didn't give him, let him off the hook. My genuine desire to please God was being formed. Unfortunately, a distorted understanding of being perfect as a means to please God was also being formed. Although my desire to seek God and live a life that was pleasing to him was growing, so was my desire to be loved and accepted by my earthly father. You see, my pop was a military man and a war veteran. He was the stereotypical picture of a, an emotionless, hard, unaffectionate, disconnected Marine. On Sunday mornings, you could do one of two things in my household. You could get dressed up and go to church with mom or stay at home and watch football with dad. See, I was the youngest of three boys. My two older brothers would choose to stay at home with dad while I would go to church with mom. This eventually led to teasing and ridicule from the most important male figures in my life. My pop and my two older brothers would regularly call me names like sissy, fag, queer. I was told to stop acting like such a girl. Soon the neighborhood kids joined in and the taunting and the name calling seemed to never end. I would always be the last one picked for sports if asked to play at all and excluded from most of those stereotypical masculine activities. I felt humiliated unloved, abandoned by those whom I desperately desired to receive love from the most. I remember hating myself and wanting to die. That changed one day when an older neighborhood boy began to experiment with me sexually. I remember welcoming the advances. I was so starved for affection that even this distorted interpretation of love felt good. In my little six-year-old childhood spirit, 
I knew it was wrong and that there was something shameful about it, but I, I didn't have the courage to say no. The abuse continued until one of my brothers found out and told my mom. And in the most caring and loving way possible, my mom asked me about the abuse. And I was mortified. I vehemently denied it and promised her that it was a lie and it never happened. She was left with no choice but to take my word for it. When the boy continued to make sexual advances, I eventually stood up to him and said no, only to be coerced into it again and again. The abuse continued until my pop got stationed at another military base and we moved away. But a destructive seed had been planted. A new appetite for sex had been birthed that I could not squelch. The desire would only increase when introduced to porn after finding a hidden stash of magazines and videos from a family member. I became sexually active at the age of 10 while experiencing, experimenting with a childhood girlfriend. I see now that I quickly moved from victim to perpetrator. The more I began to act out sexually, the more my desire for perfection in other areas of my life increased. It was as if I thought that being the ideal son, student, leader, brother, and friend would make up for the sins that I was committing in secret. I began to live this double life without even realizing it. I'd be on the honor roll, hold offices in student government, win speech competitions, have lead roles in school plays, and be the teacher's pet, all the while acting out sexually with anyone who would give me the attention. At, at, at age 16, my sexual indiscretions would finally catch up with me. One of the toughest things that I ever had to do was to confess to my hero, my mom, that her baby boy was very imperfect. You see, I had to tell my mom that I got my high school girlfriend pregnant. And the thought of disappointing her almost crushed me. Upon hearing the news, she expressed brief disappointment that was followed by unconditional love, acceptance, and encouragement. I was determined to marry my girlfriend and, and start our young family together. My mom took me, to, took me and my girlfriend to the doctor to verify that the pregnancy was real and, and then to figure out how to tell her family. We were met with the devastating blow that the girl's father would insist that she get an abortion. And I pleaded literally on my knees for her not to do it. I begged for the life of my unborn child. This yielded no results. Sobbing and broken, my mom helped me to my feet, out of my girlfriend's house, and back into the family car. Within a week, the abortion procedure was performed and there was nothing I could do to stop it. The devastation I felt would leave a ripple effect that threw me even deeper into my sexual addiction and perfectionistic tendencies. I used sex to medicate the pain and 
perfectionistic, codependent tendencies to earn acceptance from others while curbing the shame of my indiscretions. Life was absolutely exhausting. I soon graduated from high school and received a scholarship to college. I took great pride in being the first one in my family to go to college and achieve this honor. Yet it was in this environment that both my codependency and sexual addiction would reach its height. I was a model student by day and a sex addict by night. The days of going to church on Sundays were gone. Although I knew Jesus to be my Savior, I wasn't following him as my Lord at all. One night, through a mutual friend, I met someone who would be instrumental in changing my life forever. A group of friends were going to a club in Los Angeles when I was introduced to a feisty, beautiful young lady who took my breath away at the moment I first saw her. She was driven, ambitious, incredibly smart, outgoing, and the life of the party. Yet that only scratched the surface. Under her confident exterior was a tenderness and a kindness that everyone was drawn to. When everyone else was partying hard and living irresponsibly with reckless abandon, she was the one who took care of us. She made sure that everyone got home safe, no one was left alone. She would hold her girlfriend's hair back when they threw up in the toilet after a heavy night of partying. She was just that kind of girl. <laughs> a friendship blossomed that soon turned into a relationship. I fell in love hard and fast. And although she had addictions of her own, she seemed perfect to me. After two years of dating, we graduated from college and I proposed. Her response to my proposal was, and I quote, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> Not the storybook happily ever after response I was hoping for. <laughs> A yes did follow that statement, and soon we were off to start our new life together as a married couple. We set out to conquer the world and make names for ourselves. We were young and free and with endless ambitions that was coupled with endless possibilities. We were gonna take over the world and I felt like I could do anything with her by my side. I was finally looking up. In June of 2004, that ha happily ever after would come to a screeching halt. During a routine health examination to purchase life insurance a short eight months into our marriage, I discovered that I had an undetected, incurable, sexually transmitted disease. I was devastated. I was told I could never have children, and felt like my life was over. Fear for the future and sharing this information with my brand new bride was overwhelming. I collapsed to the ground and did the only thing I knew to do, which was pray. I asked God to spare my wife. I said, Lord, please, please do not let her have any trace of this illness. 
I told her of my STD and had mentally prepared for her to leave me. I had actually prepared to die. I had already purchased a bottle of sleeping pills and found a spot along the PCH staring into the ocean where I knew I was going to spend my last moments before I took my own life. I had made up my mind that if she decided to leave me, I didn't deserve to live. I thought I deserved to die. The day that I told her was by far, to this very day, the worst day of my life. Upon delivering the news, I fell into her arms, sobbing uncontrollably while she held me and told me that it was going to be okay. This was the single greatest act of unconditional love and forgiveness that I would experience by any human being to this very day. Although she was devastated, confused, terrified, scared for her own health, and battling feelings of betrayal, she wouldn't let me go until I was able to pull myself together. And to this day, I have committed to spending the rest of my life serving her in a way that could express my gratitude for her loving me in such an extraordinary way. God did answer my desperate prayer to protect her. She ended up testing disease-free with no trace of any illness, although we had had unprotected sex so many times for years. God had answered my prayer and performed a miracle. Yeah. We soon began the long journey to try to have a family. The more we heard it wasn't possible, the more determined we were to show the world that through God all things are possible. We found a facility out of state that would help us in our journey to have children. We encountered the heartache of two losses, two miscarriages, and saw our financial resources dwindle to nothing, then further into debt. It was during our last try at in vitro fertilization that God not only gave us back the two babies that we lost, but showered us with the blessing of three. Yeah. On April 22nd, 2006, we gave birth to thriving triplets. And can I tell you that today I have the most beautiful, amazing family that a man could ever ask for. This is a scripture that we, we meditated on often during our journey to try to have children. It's Isaiah 54, verse 2 through 3. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your curtain tents wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. And boy, did God do that. Okay. Yeah, we stood on this verse until this promise of God came true for us. We soon began to adapt to our new normal. Life as a parent of multiples would prove to be the greatest adventure that I would ever have. 
The twists and turns of parenthood bring extreme joy and ultimately even more <laughs> extreme reliance on God. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it wasn't long after that that we found ourselves working on a church staff and trusting God for more. Soon, more came in the form of a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. My pastor asked me to do some research on Celebrate Recovery to see if it would be a good fit for our church. And in 2009, myself, accompanied by a small team of leaders, attended our first CR Summit at Saddleback Church. We instantly felt and knew that God had something special in store for our church. I knew it was going to be something to be proud of. God was going to use me to help bring freedom to the brokenhearted in our church. I was so excited to help everyone else. I knew I was just fine. I knew I had issues, but nothing serious. <laughs> Nothing I couldn't handle on my own, so I thought. I mean, at that point, I was a pastor, I was a husband, I was a father, I was a taxpayer, and an all-good citizen of the United States of America. <laughs> Recoveries for people whose lives were out of control and falling apart, and that certainly wasn't me. What I soon found out was that God had to move heaven and earth to bring CR to my front door. He loved me so much, and he knew that my denial was so thick that he'd have to make sure I was the one to lead it in order for me to get the help that I so desperately needed. <laughs> yep. CR was here specifically for me. God loved Anthony Powell so much that he would stop at nothing to see me set free. I began to lead a step study and work the steps for myself. It's always a journey, and I'm still on it, but walking today in more freedom than I've ever felt in my entire life. God has taken away the shame of my past and has given me a new future. Psalm 30, 11 through 12 says this, you did it. You changed wild lament into whirling dance. You ripped off my black mourning band and decked me with wildflowers. I'm about to burst with song. I can't keep quiet about you. God, my God, I can't thank you enough. Yeah. And on January 31st, 2016, my wife and I began a new exciting journey. Together, we launched... RLC, Redeemed Life Church of Azusa. And if anyone would have told me that I would one day be entrusted with the great responsibility of planting a church and leading God's people, I would have laughed in their face. <laughs> no way. I would have said, man, there is no way God would be so gracious to esteem me to such a position as that. This is the ultimate proof that God redeems. My life is a living testimony to that fact. This is why we named our church plant 
Redeemed Life Church. We launched January 31st of 2016. And in the short 18 weeks of our existence, we've seen lives come to Christ, the broken transformed, families restored, marriages healed, and the afflicted set free. I know from the core of my being that leading Celebrate Recovery for the many years that I did was the training ground for what God has me doing today. I could not have done it without CR. I love what I get to do. And over the years, I've heard story after story of people finding hope and purpose in Christ within the doors of Celebrate Recovery. Leading that CR has been one of the greatest accomplishments of my life. God continues to show off in my life as I walk in health and sobriety from sexual addiction, same-sex attraction, and codependency. The days of shame and hiding are over. I'm finally able to receive love completely, knowing that God loves me completely and unconditionally. So if you're new at Celebrate Recovery, I would simply say this, welcome home. We've been praying for you to get here. You'll find that there's always a place for you here at the table. The meal we serve is one that will bring you nourishment to the soul. There's plenty to go around, so help yourself and get your fill. Know that when you find yourself hungry or even starving again, there will always be a space reserved for you here. Here you'll meet the most amazing, wonderful, kind people that ever walked the surface of the planet. We call them forever family. They will love your face off if you let them. They will. And my prayer is that you will let them. (laughs) That you will embrace them as they embrace you. A verse that I hold on to as my life verse is this one, Isaiah 118. And it says, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And I'll finish with this. You see, in my journey of recovery, I've come to realize that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And that power has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. God's desire for my life is to wipe clean every mistake I've ever made or will make. He loves me completely. He loves you completely. The freedom that, has, that he has for me is greater than anything that I could have ever dreamed of. And thanks to Celebrate Recovery, I'm learning to live in that freedom like never before. Thank you for letting me share. This is Matthew Coker. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with pornography, overeating, codependency, and depression. Hi, Forever Family. I gave my testimony quite a few times in the past few years, and I've always focused a lot on what God has saved me from. But now that I've got some significant clean time underneath my belt, I also want to focus on what God has done with me in the time since. But first, let me tell you how I got here. 
Not many people in this room are here because they struggle with pornography. But statistically, 80% of the men in this room and 50% of the women have viewed pornography in the last few months. And 50% of the men and 20% of the women view it on a regular basis, habitually, addictively. So I think a better way to say it is that not many people are in this room because they think that pornography is a problem for them, even though it might be. For those of you who don't know, out of everyone who has ever been in this room, I am one of the ones that this city is scared of the most. Why? Because I am a registered sex offender. And when someone wears that label, people immediately assume that you have done one of the worst, most disgusted, perverted, devious things a human being can do, and you are endangering them and your children just by existing. So what did I do to get put on this list? I gave up. I discovered porn when I was 11, stumbling upon a box of Playboys my oldest brother had left behind when he moved out. I didn't have a hard childhood, but at the time, my parents were going through a rough patch. My dad's business was failing, my mother got breast cancer, and my family was going bankrupt. My house was constantly on the edge, overly stressed and hard to cope with. When I discovered porn, I discovered a way to cope. Things didn't get easier for my family until several years and several moves later. And by the time I'd hit high school, I had figured out every way an underage kid could score pornography there was. <clears throat> I knew that it wasn't something I should be doing. But it was an escape that could last several hours a day, every day, that would put me in a world of happiness and pleasure, at least for a time. I'd been in church in one form or another for several years, but I got saved in 2002, my sophomore year. I was driving home from my girlfriend's house and listening to a preacher on the radio talk about habitual sins and how they can harden our hearts against ever accepting Christ. I just felt that this is what was happening to me. I knew what Christianity was about. I believed in God and Jesus. I went to church regularly. I believed in what the Bible taught. I just never took that step. I, avoid made, I avoided making that commitment because I knew that that would mean that I would have to give up my porn habit. And honestly, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to cope without it. But finally, in this short drive home, I realized that I was clinging on to something destructive and running from the potential God saw in me. So that night, in my driveway, I gave my life to Christ. Now, a lot of people reach this point in their testimony, and that's pretty much the end. Lived this hard life, accepted Christ, things started getting better, here I am today. Unfortunately, that's not what happened with me. I gave my life to Christ, and I was hoping that that would end my habit, but it didn't. If anything, it got worse from there. One of the tougher points that we learn when we get to principle three and celebrate recovery is that just because we turn our lives over to God, it doesn't mean that we've turned our wills over to him yet. They're two different decisions. One secures your eternal life, the next secures your earthly life. 
One is a decision that you make one time and it lasts forever. The other is a decision that you have to make every morning when you get out of bed. It's a decision you have to make every moment of every day. Accepting Christ is just the first step on your journey to faith. To grow, you must commit to him. Give him priority for your life. Rely on his willpower. Follow his will for your life. Even if it takes you out of your comfort zone, which it almost certainly will. So I turned my life over to Christ when I was 16, but it wouldn't be until I was 22 that I started to turn my will over to him. By the time I was a senior in high school, my girlfriend and I were planning our wedding already. So at this point, I just decided to stop fighting. I figured once I got married, I'm not going to need pornography anymore. So until then, I decided I'd just enjoy it. I did not realize just how much subconsciously I was already fighting this addiction until I decided to stop. Because this opened the floodgates of increasingly taboo material and more and more time spent looking at it. And even worse, two years later, when my girlfriend and I did get married, my habit didn't go away. It didn't even lessen up. My wife would work evenings, and I would often spend the entire time she was gone looking at pornography. I'm talking five to seven hours straight three to four nights a week. I had become a professional liar, a con artist, a master of hiding places. I had this porn addiction thing perfected. Six months into our marriage, I made the worst mistake of my life. A series of bad clicks brought me to an illegal pornography website that sold folders of pornography labeled by ages. In my sex-crazed idiocy, I pulled out my credit card and I bought a folder labeled 15 to 17-year-olds. Now, I was 19 at the time, so the biggest age gap here was four years. I was, I'm not saying that to belittle my action. It was illegal. It was terrible. I'm just saying it to make it clear that I was never a pedophile or a predator. <clears throat> I was just an addict looking for a new drug. But even though what I bought was photos of older teenagers, the website that I put money into exploited children of all ages. That's what really disgusts me about my past behavior. I put money into the industry of sexual predators and sex slavery. I knew that's where the money was going, and I sat there, and I justified my behavior, convincing myself to do it anyway. That is what I wish I could take back, but I can't. Almost a year later, the person running that website got caught, and the records that he kept were used to arrest about 100 people across America, uh, including myself. After a couple years of waiting, I was finally given a merciful sentence of six months in prison and three years probation, which is usually unheard of in cases like this. Most people in my situation with uh, 
get three years in jail and 10 years to life on probation. Now I attribute this to the amount of people who stood beside me. Even at my day in court, standing right beside me was my wife, my parents, my pastor, my in-laws, even an officer who helped collect evidence against me, all there to support me. When I was first interviewed by ICE about the purchase, I had to tell my wife what I had done. She immediately told me that she wasn't going to leave me and that she still loved me. Her bravery, love, compassion, and unwavering faith in God and in us is something that still inspires me to this day. And I did not deserve such grace from her. And after I was first arrested and my face was in the paper, and on the nightly news in my town, I was released on bond, and when Sunday rolled around, I did not want to go to church. Eventually, my wife convinced me that it would be good, but I agreed to go only if we came in late, after handshaking time, and left early so we wouldn't have to talk to anybody. However, after a very somber sermon, during the altar call, we felt led to go pray at the steps. And we prayed. And as we prayed, we felt a few hands touch our backs. And I thought, thank God that there are a few people who are willing to stand by us. But nothing could have prepared us for what we saw when we stood up and turned around. Almost everyone in the church had come up and surrounded us. More grace, more unconditional love, more strength that only God can provide. It was at that moment that I knew, I knew for certain that we weren't going to have to go through this alone. In the nearly two years between my initial arrest and my six months on the inside, I was introduced to Celebrate Recovery. In fact, the first night I attended a program across town, was the first night that they were starting a men's sexual purity group. It was a great place to start going in the right direction with other men who struggled like I did. And in that time, I even became a leader. I made it an entire year without looking at porn. But then I had to step down because I relapsed on the very day that I made it to one year clean. At this point, I think I was more depressed than ever. I mean, I had made it an entire year, which is really a long time, without giving in to that temptation. And then on the day that I should be celebrating a year of freedom, I gave it up for nothing with very, very little temptation. And shortly after that, at what I feel like was my lowest point, that's when I entered my prison sentence. I lived in fear each day I was in there. I was put in rooms with violent gang members. I was bitten by some crazy spider and had this big baseball-sized growth on the back of my neck for about a month. 
I was beginning to get scales on my body from the terrible quality of the water. I was constantly afraid of diseases like hepatitis or worse. And I worried that every day that someone would find out what I was really in there for because, frankly, and without any exaggeration on my part, sex offenders are killed in prison. I did my time, which was relatively short, but plenty long enough for my taste. And God protected me. And he also took the time to grow my faith in a way that I had never been able to do before. You see, I had been saved in 2002, but as I said, I'd done nothing with that faith faith since. I pretended to be some super spiritual perfect Christian, and I fooled many with that act. But it wasn't until my life, my friends, my wife, and my freedom were ripped away from me that I was wholly and completely dependent on God. That's usually how rock bottom goes, right? When you are as low as you can possibly go, the only thing that you can do is look up. The next three years were focused on actually overcoming the addiction. With a combination of CR, direct discipleship, and a lot of helpful books, God helped me make the right choices more and more often. I still relapsed a few more times, but... God rewards perseverance, not perfection. Getting up and trying again. And eventually, I was able to see the path he was showing me. I was fortunate enough to receive free counseling from a Christian counselor who could see things about me that I really couldn't even see myself. And because of all that, this past June, I celebrated five years clean. So I want to tell you about these last five years. Once my probation was over, my wife and I were free to return to Clovis, so we did. And I know a few of you in here are muttering under your breath, why? <laughs> but we like it here and our families are here. But when I arrived back here, I was afraid because not many people I knew in high school had seen me since I was arrested. I was afraid of running into people who knew me before, and I was also afraid of making new friends and eventually having to explain the situation to them. But God has been with me every step of the way. So I had no reason to think that he would abandon me now. And in all that time since, I've only ever had one person respond to me negatively, at least in my face. And so many more giving me a chance, giving me grace, not writing me off based on one mistake. My marriage has gone through more than most can survive. But our commitment to each other continues to grow stronger and stronger. I got plugged back in with my church, which welcomed me back without a judgmental word or a suspicious glance. I am treated no differently than anyone else. I was even given a job there again. It was the same job that I had and lost when this whole mess started. Not only that, but when I came back, I got the opportunity to become better friends with Cipriano Martinez the director of My Church's Celebrate Recovery, and the CR state rep for this area of New Mexico. When they were revamping our CR program at Highland, I was asked to join as a co-leader and help get the program off the ground again with SIPI. Now, since then, while I've stepped back a bit in my role because of some new amazing journeys God's taken me on, 
I have been extremely grateful and honored to stand beside Cipriano. He's kept me accountable, been an endless encouragement, and has knocked some sense to me when I needed it. And at CR, God has blessed me with the opportunity to lead men in step study classes, to sponsor men who struggle with pornography, and to encourage others as they reach their milestones in recovery. It's been a huge blessing in my life. Outside of CR, God has been building a new ministry around me called The Back Row, an online ministry dedicated to those of us who tend to sit on the back pew, the pew closest to the door, just like I did. Because we're afraid of what others would think if they really knew us and how much we really struggled, and we sit in the back. So if we have to, we can make a quick exit. The ministry is both to minister to people like us, Christians who are still struggling with addictions, bad habits, and hurts, and also to encourage those of us who have been in that position to never whitewash our testimonies, but to be open and brutally honest about our past so anyone can see that there is no limit to what God can redeem, that there is no such thing as a worthless human being, and that redemption is offered to everyone. This past year, I've been putting a lot of focus into the back row, and God has really been blessing it with tremendous growth. We were even featured in Faces Magazine in July, just a few weeks ago, which is a Christian publication from New Zealand, of all places. We're ministering to people through devotionals, testimonies, videos, one-on-one -on -one accountability, as well as trying to brighten their day with several humorous outlets and social media. And it's been a wonderful new journey that God's taken us on. And speaking of new journeys, I've also been blessed with a wonderful baby boy, 17 months old, who is the biggest blessing God has ever given me. And being a father just reminds me that I need to continue to follow the path God wants me to, to be a good example for my son. Here's the biggest truth that you need to realize, and this is true for any addiction or bad habit. When I was living in my addiction, it helped me cope with a miserable life. But without that addiction in my life, my life was much less miserable. My addiction made me live the life of a liar, a life of selfishness, of fear, of guilt, of depression, of constantly worrying that one day I'm going to get caught, and when I do, what will the consequences be? My life without my addiction has been one of happiness, one of strength in the face of tough times, one where I'm not worried about the consequences of my bad actions because I'm not living that life anymore, and one where there is nothing that I cannot do. Because my willpower, my strength, comes from God Almighty. The last thing I want to share with you is Psalm 51. And this is actually from the message paraphrase, but I just love the way it's presented. And I kept this on my person every day while I was fighting. Generous in love, God, give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. 
You're the one I violated, and you've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you, and whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. And what you're after is truth from the inside out. So enter me then. Conceive a new true life. Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me into foot tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation, God, and I'll sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God, and I'll let loose with your praise. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. The original version of this was written by King David, one of the greatest heroes of the Bible after he hit rock bottom in his life after he slept with a married woman, accidentally got her pregnant, and had her husband killed as part of the cover-up. It's a pretty dark chapter. But even after this, David was known as a man after God's own heart. His legacy is one of heroism, righteousness, and honor. When we own up to our mistakes, work to overcome them and accept the consequences, when we hand our lives and wills over to God, he can not only give us a new life, but he can give us a legacy. I stand before you a product of God's grace. Without Christ, I was nothing. Without his mercy, I was doomed. Without his will, I was lost. But now, through him and him alone, I am found, I am saved, and I have a new and greater purpose. If God can restore my life, protect my relationships, and provide for my future after everything that I've done, he can and will do it for anyone. Thank you for letting me share tonight. Hi, my name is MK. I'm a grateful believer in, uh, in Jesus Christ, and um, I am in recovery from sex addiction. Um, and, you know, I've known Jack and Kelly for as long as I have been uh, in recovery, which is, um, which is going on to four years now. So I'm going to share my story with you guys, um, and I hope, you know, something in it resonates with you. Um, so I was born in the, in the African country of Malawi. Only through 
recovery uh, did I start to understand how my early background impacted my addiction. Um, the Africa I grew up in was steeped in traditional beliefs where the man was seen as having controlling power in the family unit and could have as many female liaisons as he liked. This practice was not frowned upon. Um, there was also a prevalence, this was in the early 70s, I was born in 71. Um, there was also a prevalence of racial separation in Malawi um, as, as, as that country was strongly influenced by all the stuff that was going on in the southern part of, um, of Africa. Um, this was the environment in which my mother tried to make a life for me and my, my two younger brothers uh, who had come in quick succession after me. Because my father was mostly absent, uh, she tried to insulate us from the influence of tradition and inculcate in us Western ways of thinking. She encouraged us to excel in school, uh, and she, um, she really did her best to focus our minds on good things, even though her life was becoming increasingly unbearable. My father's philandering ways were very apparent, um, and he, he made no attempt to hide his unfaithfulness to her. When I was nine, and under pretense of going to the Caribbean on holiday, my mother took all three of us out of that situation to where she was born in Trinidad. Trinidad was a shock to me. I was thrust into a society where racial unity appeared to be the accepted norm, and on the surface there was one cultural fabric that, that knitted the entire country together. Trinidad also had a level of sexual permissiveness and open promiscuity I had not seen before, and nowhere is this more evident than in the country's annual carnival celebrations. Um, carnival in Trinidad is very similar to Mardi Gras. You know, it happens around the same time. Has the same kind of French Catholic root. Um, so um, so that's, that's, that's kind of the background on that. Um, and so this is the environment that birthed what I call my insanity. The appearance of racial inequality and the resulting inadequacies, a sense of abandonment for my dad, all of these things created a need in me for affirmation and valuation. And these are some of the needs I sought to fill up through my addiction. My first introduction to anything sexual happened when I was six by an older female classmate in Malawi. I don't remember much about this show-and-tell incident apart from the fact that my brain got its first taste of the high that comes from sexual pleasure. When I learned to masturbate at the age of nine, I reconnected with that high. That's the same time I entered Trinidad, Trinidadian society. My masturbation habit fast became a coping mechanism for me and then an addiction, fed by images in my head and then onto images of scantily clad women in local Trinidadian tabloids. I was introduced to full-fledged porn and porn magazines in high school by my friends. I, was, um, I saw my first pornographic film at the age of 13 at the paramilitary camp for boys, an event that was facilitated by the adult organizer of the camp. After this point, I would look forward to the times when I could be alone to chase my high with my increasingly large stash of porn. I did well in high school and went on to university, um, and there the campus environment allowed me more freedom to nurse my masturbation habit. 
at this point, uh, this is you know, like 17, 18, I had not been sexual with anyone else. And as, as I was unsure of myself and my attractiveness to women, I preferred the proven alternative of isolated self-pleasuring because of my self-worth, affirmation, value issues from my childhood. In any case, I reasoned that masturbation would prevent me from getting somebody pregnant or contracting an illness and would ironically preserve my virginity. It is ironic that my belief of the wrongness of premarital sex was not reflected in my deep addiction to masturbation. After graduation, I got a job and hoped that increased responsibility would rid me of my dangerously frequent masturbation habit. I met the woman who would become my first wife, and at the age of 22, I accepted Christ into my life. I would like to say that his entrance into my life brought with it a renewed desire for purity, but that was not the case. Three years after meeting, we were married, and during that three-year period, my habit disappeared. I thought I was cured. One year into my marriage, I quit my job to finish my graduate degree. The time at home, alone and on my computer, this was mid-90s, awakened my dormant habit, which quickly connected with the new, at the time it was new, pornography delivery system of the internet. This time, I was introduced to chat lines and also started looking for other avenues to feed my escalating, escalating addiction. I decided to come clean to my first wife about my habit, and this hurt her deeply. And our marriage never recovered, as she withdrew and I grew frustrated at her resistance to return to a state of open vulnerability and trust with me. When I re-entered the workforce, I abandoned all of the remaining spiritual and marital standards that I held for myself and became more flirtatious with women. My internet habit transferred itself to work and I used various pornography and chat sites at the office. I spent company resources talking on the phone with women from other countries and in one case, my employer traced the calls back to me and asked me to play, pay the multi-thousand dollar bill. By God's mercy, this was the full extent of disciplinary action I faced. My insanity was spiraling out of control, and I was speeding toward an outcome I never envisioned for myself or my marriage. My first wife migrated to the U.S., and though I promised that I would join her thereafter, I was more excited by the time I would have to chase my addiction. Even as I was pursuing a relationship external to my marriage, with the woman who would later become my second wife, I continued to intimately entertain other women and otherwise feed my addiction through the addiction of webcams and various adult networking sites to my arsenal. Two years later, I joined my first wife in the US and thought I can continue my, my various extramarital activities and remain married for the sake of my son, who was now five years old. By that time, I was heavily involved in multiple adult networking sites and was a member of several exclusive pornography websites and video chat sites that kept catered to my fetishes and fantasies. My web of deception was held together with various email aliases and addresses 
Moving to the U.S. was like pouring lighter fluid on the fire of my addiction. And my arrival in Houston made me feel as if I had landed on the motherload. I quickly identified the sexual hotspots, started visiting massage parlors, and spent hours online on various sexual activities, including webcams, chat sites, looking at or posting online ads at sites like Craigslist and others. Each discovery of my actions by my first wife led to less than honest apologizing, more acting out, and to more discoveries. This cycle took its toll, and three years after moving here, I was beginning to tire of my increasingly deceptive lifestyle. I was not, however, interested in repairing all the damage that I had done to my first marriage, so I moved out. My extramarital relationship from Trinidad was now my mainstay, and I thought I could start anew while hiding the truth about my addiction. One year after moving out, I got divorced and quickly remarried. During the year that I was alone, I had some extent of sobriety and entered into my new marriage, managing my soberness through self-will, white-knuckling, as we say. Even though I had cleaned up most of my external behavior, and I, I put cleaned up in quotation marks, I continued to be flirtatious. My eyes continued to wander and my thoughts wandered and I would look at workplace allowable classifieds for many hits. On Wednesday, October 26, 2011, I decided my impatient addiction beast needed more to be satisfied. Acting on my addiction triggers, I set up an email address, took explicit pictures of myself with the intention of responding to and posting my own ads. Because I had not done this in a while, my cleanup left a trail. And my wife, who's here with me tonight, found the pictures and the email address. During the silences of the phone admission that proceeded, I could hear the pieces of my wife's already tentative heart shattering to the ground. She knew some of my past, but not all. I thought I had managed to destroy a second marriage, effectively continuing from where I had left. The realization that I was powerless against this, in, this legacy of infidelity and philandering that started with my father created the deepest sense of despair and desperation I have ever known. The following Tuesday, November 1st, 2011, I walked through the doors of Celebrate Recovery. Let me talk a little bit about my relationship to God. In Trinidad, I started to go uh, with my grandmother to her Pentecostal church. But after a while, I decided that I wanted to be a Presbyterian like my dad. Before I accepted Christ, I had a condescending view of anyone who professed to be evangelical, born again, Pentecostal, full gospel. This continued until December 18, 1993, when I surrendered my life to Christ. My early Christian enthusiasm prompted me to be active in my first evangelical church, leading praise and worship, teaching, and at one point studying for ministry. But still, I kept Christ at arm's length from my sexual addiction. The heavy burden of guilt led me to talk with pastors and counselors, but I was not ready to give up something I considered to be absolutely essential for my existence. 
I rationalized that God was too good to punish me anyway. As my addiction escalated, my relationship with God suffered. What was my attitude with others like? Although Trinidad is a melting pot of cultures, there's still a significant amount of stereotyping that occurs. My mother attempted with some success to dispel the thinking uh, or to dispel that kind of thinking with her encourage, encouragement for us to embrace everyone equally. This approach was challenged when I started to work. The racial differences in the workplace lashed into my shame cycle of inferiority as a result of the messages I had received at home and from others, and I developed a significant barrier to connecting with people outside my own race. This thinking lent itself into an extension of putting women into categories and objectifying them. I saw women as a compilation of physical assets and that their primary goal was to sell those assets to the highest bidder. I saw men as having no control over this game. In my ex existence of addictive made-believe, I thought I could break free from this manipulation. As I struggled with this feeling of inferiority, I also wrestled with a sense of judgmentalism. I was quick to identify people who I thought were inferior to me and would avoid connection with them as well because I thought that this would result in an inevitable dependence. I feared connecting with anyone because I thought they would discover my brokenness at thinking them either superior or inferior and reject me. I would like to say that I saw the light and decided that entering recovery was necessary for the preservation of my sanity. But like many of us, I came, or I first came because I was caught with my pants down, so to speak. I knew about Celebrate Recovery for a while, but I thought it was, it, it was just for drug addicts and alcoholics, not for people like me who didn't have a problem. After I got over my initial reservations, I realized there were people, or these were people, just as broken as me, struggling with similar issues, listening to me without judgment, and not offering to fix me. This is where I needed to be. Celebrate Recovery is for people like me. The thing that has amazed me about Celebrate Recovery is the connection between Christ's message and his desire for my recovery. The scripture passage that has just set my recovery on fire and has demolished the walls of shame and guilt for me is found in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Translation for my life. Even though there was no internet in Jesus' time, he was faced with having to make a decision for sexual purity. I failed. He didn't. And because of that, there's nothing that I can tell him that will cause him to turn his face away from me. The honesty and deep soul searching through the program led me to confront my denial and accept that I needed help. 
for the first time, I was able to look at the full timeline of my life and connect hurts to hang-ups and habits. I did not realize that people who had hurt me a lifetime ago still figured in the way I made decisions. I identified individuals that I had wronged in very significant ways. I learned the power of forgiveness, that it is instantaneous for God, but a daily process for me. I was able to share my deepest, darkest secrets with a group of guys, and this now allows me the freedom to share my struggles and challenges openly. The program changed the way I think about asking others for help. Something that I did not do, simply did not do before I got into recovery. Some of the things that my sponsor, Jack, had me do seemed to, seemed to, make, seemed to not make sense on the surface. But working through these steps revealed wisdom and spurred on my recovery. I am convinced that Celebrate Recovery and Celebrate Recovery Step Studies and working through the steps are the wonderful saving gospel of Jesus Christ in action, bringing remedy and restoration to those who are sick. Jesus Christ came to heal the sick, and he has saved this very sick man. I have learned several things about my addiction, and I will share just a few with you. First is that sexual addiction exists at various levels, and as with drugs or alcohol, the more I use, the more I need to get the high I am after. God has delivered me from this sexual compulsion and given me a fresh perspective on the role that sex plays in my life. God is healing the hang-ups and hurts that feed my compulsive habits but I have triggers that can cause me to slip if I ever lose vigilance. So I need to daily depend on God. The second thing is if I look at my addiction as a series of concentric circles, the inner circle would be the actual behavior, watching pornography, etc. Middle circle behaviors are those that lead to activation triggers. And for me, those activation triggers include people watching, objectification of women, lustful fantasizing, flirtatious behavior, loss of eye control. Outer circle behaviors focus on core beliefs and relationships with God and others. If my outer circle behaviors are flawed and dysfunctional, then I transition quickly and easily into destructive inner circle patterns. Third thing I've learned. James 1, 13 to 15 outlines the progression that we all go through as addicts. When tempted, and it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This general description of the birth of sinful thought is a very powerful study for me, the addict. My sinful choice always starts with a thought, whether external or internal, which connects with a natural desire. Part of my recovery journey has been arresting the rationalization process in my mind and creating a wider view of the world that allows me to broaden the range of possible choices that I have. The fourth thing I've learned. There's a connection between the things I believe 
and my addiction cycle. My impaired thinking and understanding of the world leads me to believe that the choices for my addiction are beyond any type of control. I connect with a sexual preoccupation that leads to the creation of a ritual. Every addict has a ritual. And this results in my acting out. After I'm done, I feel despair that feeds my belief system and the entangled process begins all over again. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5 indicates the source of power that we have in Christ to be able to control this runaway thought train. It says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. With these weapons, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As an addict, I have learned that I have a choice to bring my thinking in line with Christ's desire for my life. The Holy Spirit's control and influence in my life makes that a reality. God has changed the way I see myself. Because I had two primary cycles of brokenness, as I shared before, one of shame and the other of judgmentalism, God has allowed me to really experience his grace in a way that attaches my worth only to the way that he views me. I have fashioned a personal affirmation that shows how wonderfully he views me and how treasured I am to him. He loves me so much that he sent Jesus to die for my sins. That has destroyed the satanic lie of personal shame that characterized my addiction. For my sense of judgment, God has shown me that I don't have to prove myself to anyone. I don't have to try so hard to show that I'm better than others. All of us are wonderfully created equally after his image. Daily, he blesses me with the humility that I need to rest in his ability to work through me. The primary relationship that God has changed in my life has been my marriage. Through the help of Christian counselors, I am learning to be the husband and father that God wants me to be. We still have a long way to go as my wife heals from the revelations and the pain that I caused her. Watching her recovery, though, has been the greatest lesson in patience for me. I thought that my willingness to change and be immediately transparent would circumvent all of the distrust and anxiety caused by my revelations. Instead, I saw her spiral into a pit of despair and doubt, even as she was continuing to express gracious forgiveness. It took me a while to realize that although I was eager to move on with my life, I stole her freedom to be carefree and innately trusting, and her healing will take time. Through CR, she has a forum to express her pain and the opportunity to courageously trust God with her tender heart. I am grateful to her for not withdrawing from me and for allowing me to come out of hiding. Recently, I have refreshed in myself the concept of unconditional love. In Ephesians 5.33, Paul says, However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself. I am learning to love her in this way, as I love myself, to give her the unconditional acceptance, appreciation, and empathy that I am instructed to, in spite of where she is. I can't use her reactions and struggles as an excuse to weasel out of my ob obligation. As simple as this sounds, 
This has been a learning process for me. The relationship I have with my children has come into a new light. I am able to have frank discussions with my boys, I have two boys, two teenagers, about sexuality, removing the shame and avoidance and replacing that with a sense of natural honesty and sacredness. I hope my transparency with them will keep them from following the path I took. As a man, I was taught to cringe at the thought of creating intimate relationships with other men. But now I am part of a brotherhood of men that will never judge me and who I can share my struggles with. I also have a, a better relationship with my biological brothers who themselves also struggle with sexual purity. Making amends was challenging. In making amends to my wife, I took responsibility not only for the deception of my addiction, but for the actions that communicated my premarital availability for an emotional connection during a time when I was not able to fulfill that obligation. I have made amends to my wife's ex-husband, who was deeply hurt by my actions. I have also made amends to my son and stepson, who suffered the consequences of broken families that I caused. I have made amends to my ex-wife, for whom I was her unfaithful father revisited, but who has allowed a relatively uncontentious participation in my son's life. My father and mother died before I had the opportunity to make direct amends to them. My mother was the victim of my apathy and refusal to connect emotionally as she struggled with multiple sclerosis, a disease that struck her down at the height of her vigor. My father was the object of my judgment and rage as I continued to blame him for the absence of a normal childhood and for depriving me the right to a positive male role model. I have also made amends to my brothers with whom, as an older brother, in our pre-teen years, I was sexually inappropriate with acts of mutual masturbation. I also realized that I took the Holy Spirit along with me as I surfed the internet or visited massage parlors, and my contrite heart will never be sufficient for the grief I caused God. I thank Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that my insufficient sorrow is not considered part payment and my guilt is no longer a burden. Jesus paid the full price for me, as the song says. One of the biggest cha changes has been the dialogue that I have with myself when I'm faced with possible female interaction or contact. As sex addicts, we have various strategies that we talk about amongst each other, um, such as bouncing eyes, starving eyes, corralling the heart. We all know kind of what we all pretty know what that means. And all of these strategies have taught me that I never have a right to look at any other woman other than my wife in a desirous way. If I do this, look longingly at another woman, I am stealing that glance from a husband or a husband-to-be, which makes me not only an addict but a thief. I have learned to identify high-risk situations that could jeopardize my commitment to pure thought. I rigorously, rigorously question my motives now instead of rationalizing and justifying my actions. My choice is to always yield to the objective of purity. I will admit this is sometimes difficult. And impurity is still erupting in my mind. 
But these boundaries are necessary for me to experience the purity that Christ desires for me. In Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus himself encouraged us not to spare any offending body part, but to gouge it out, cut it off, throw it away for the sake of purity. I will do whatever it takes to remain sober and pure in thought, and I will claim his grace to stand every time my imperfections try to pull me from this path. Before I came into recovery, I had a very haphazard devotion life. As a recovering addict, my time with God is critical to my sobriety. It is absolutely essential that he fills me up every day. My new hunger for his word keeps a teachable spirit within me. I practice, I actively practice step 10 by continuously journaling areas in my life that have gone well and those that have not gone so well. I thank God for those that have gone well and ask his forgiveness for those that don't go so well. Thanking him for his righteous cleansing and making prompt amends if necessary. Some parting words. I have learned that healing comes through working the steps with a sponsor and being accountable to others. Learning to admit powerlessness, inviting Christ to control, embracing forgiveness, and a constant vigilance through a rigorous honesty with God and others. Procrastination will not make me better. For me, the 12-step program is not something that I graduate from after I have shared my testimony several times. It is a way of life that I will never abandon until the day I leave this earth. Whatever the reason that brought you through these doors, the only reason to stay is an earnest desire for the restoration of a God-centered sanity to your life. If after a while you don't have that desire, then ask God for it, and the God of the impossible will grant you that desire. Matthew 7, 78 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Be persistent. He did it for me. At this point, I want to share directly with my brother or sister here, who may not know this Jesus of mine personally. There will come a time, tonight or later on, when you will be faced with a decision to believe in him. At that point, a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I am a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross to take away my sin. Today, I believe and receive you into my heart will result in this Jesus of mine becoming yours as well. Before I leave, I want to pray for all of us as the Apostle Paul prayed for the Colossian church. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I ask you to give us complete knowledge of your will and to give us spiritual wisdom. Then the way we live will always honor and please you and our lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while we will grow as we learn to know you better and better. I also pray that we will be strengthened with all of your glorious power so that we will have all of the endurance and patience that we need. May we, f may, may we be filled with joy, always thanking you. 
you have enabled us to share in the inheritance of your people who live in the light. For you have rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Amen and thank you.